0: Hi, you're listening to the verit podcast news for the 65 million i'm your host peter dow um no, just kidding. I can't sustain that bid for more than a second. Uh, it's Michael and us, of course. Um, Good stuff. I
1: think if you'd had another week to workshop, we it, workshop a it, bit.
0: yeah. Um, well, I mean, I did. I did spend a few hours on that, so I hope it wasn't entirely in vain. Verification code six nine four two zero. Nice. <laughs> um, all right, so I'm here with uh, Will Sloan, of course, as and, always. Hello. And uh, uh, friend of the show, uh, past guest Alex Ross is with us as well. Hi, happy to be here again. We're here, you know, in my apartment where we usually record. It's another kind of late one and uh, another movie that just kind of felt like, I don't know, it was draining our souls a little bit, but it's one we wanted to do for quite some time that I think is a real throwback to uh, the age where this show really exists kind of in spirit, the the early 2000s, and uh, that's, of course, uh, V for Vendetta. We're going to get to talking about that film in a bit, but uh, I think there were some other things we wanted to talk about. Yeah, I'd
1: like to introduce a brand new segment of the show called morewatch.com. Uh, <laughs> as you all know, this is a Michael Moore podcast, first and foremost, and if you were on the Michael Moore internet in the- Which I, like, in the legitimately was. Uh, you'll remember a website called morewatch.com, which was, like, I, Michael Moore himself called it the biggest anti-Michael Moore website on the internet it's no longer there so i think that means it's in public domain so we're bringing it back for this new segment morewatch.com should we maybe get some some theme music
0: yeah actually Um, that would would be good some people say bowl and (laughs) now has got big lanes got big
1: lanes got big lanes okay um so
2: i I just want to comment that i think it's really indicative of just what a sad political moment the mid-2000s were that there was an entire website just dedicated to analyzing the, michael moore there were
0: many websites. there were many and in fact i found it through a, a website i used to go a, a conservative blog called snarkbait.com <laughs> Snarkbait. where as right. a teenager i used to have arguments with uh did you have like in the forums like yeah it there? was it was in the forums and it might actually still be up there but of course um they had a, they were staunch like bush voters and stuff and um and you know i was the i was the the token lib i guess mm-hmm. and um Uh, you're actually ahead of your time because now all the liberals do on Twitter is just quote tweet conservatives and say, um, hypocrisy (laughs) much. Well, um, they had a blog roll, of course, and that's how I found morewatch.com. So you
1: had a, a bit of Michael Moore news this week. You, I think, uncovered a conspiracy.
0: Right. So this is something we missed back when we did our, you know, famous Canadian bacon, (laughs) Canadian bacon episode. You know, if you haven't listened to that episode, you know, you might need some context. Pause this, go download that episode, listen to the whole thing. There's a scene where John Candy and um, the two other like forgettable characters. Rhea Perlman, I believe. I'm not sure though, I think because they're going to rescue her at this point, oh, right? right? Um, get your facts straight. I'm um, sorry. you should go listen to the episode and then we can finish the Sorry, discussion. there's no no Verit verification code <laughs> for that. Yeah, well, that was an alternative <laughs> yeah. fact. So they're driving up to Toronto and they're like rolling up in a truck, and then they like stop and, and we'll just we'll just play the scene right here. There it is, men. Toronto. It's beautiful. Like no other city I've ever seen. It's like Albany, only cleaner. I get a view of Toronto and it's a view like they're supposed to be coming in from Buffalo, I think. And it's a view that like is obviously, um, well, I tweeted that it was Toronto Island, but a few people uh, suggested it was uh, Leslie Spit, which is also kind of just like, it's just off of Toronto Island. It's just a little further east. It's kind of on like a little peninsula so there's literally no way they could have gotten, like, when you're driving into Toronto, you do not have that view of the city. Anyway, I thought it was time that, um, you know, we've been very effusive in our praise of Michael Moore on the show, and I think friends are honest with each other, and, uh, you know, uh, Michael, do better. And uh, Michael, you
2: know, if you ever have any objections to the content on the show, I think you should just come on. Talk to Will and Luke. Michael, go on Michael and us. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. because they've been the most dedicated watchers of your films. Uh, They've dissected them. I would say that they've taken a scholarly approach uh, to discussing your films. So, you know, really, I think that you should really sit down with these two fine young men and uh, discuss your entire body of work. (laughs) By the way, you
1: tagged
0: uh, Michael Moore in that thread. Did he respond? No, Michael Moore has yet to respond to any of our overtures Mm. so if you're listening to this tweet at michael moore ask him to come on the show at mm flint we want to talk to him about the canadian bacon scandal that's right hashtag yeah well it's not a scandal yet but we're gonna make it one yeah um i guess moving on to more topical material we like to take a sideways glance at the news on this show and of course in the last week Sorry, I just couldn't keep it there when you said that. <laughs> I apologize. I'm sorry. Past week in the news, of course, has been the McDonald's Szechuan incident. I mean, I I don't I don't think I still fully grasp what happened because I don't really well, know well, what to be Rick fair, and Morty to is. Uh, We're now gonna okay. go to Alex Ross, our official Szechuan correspondent. Well, A-
1: Alex, you're kind of. Uh, immersed somewhat in fan culture. Yeah. Uh, you, are you familiar with Rick and Morty?
2: Yeah, I'm familiar with Rick and Morty. I mean, I will, I won't lie. I've only ever watched clips. I haven't sat down and watched the show. Um, what what the hell is Rick and well, Morty? Well, it's sort of a riff on the relationship between Doc Brown and Marty McFly in Back to the Future, except there's uh. sort of a multiverse concept and basically there're many different Ricks. The whole incident uh as as it was arose out of a joke that happens in the third season where literally Rick, you know, he does all these nefarious things, and he explains to Morty that it was basically all to get some of the Mulan promotional McNugget sauce. I mean, that's, like, mm-hmm. the most... And, I mean, it's it's totally, like, meaningless, and it's, like, totally absurd. But McDonald's, you know, which uh, apparently actually hasn't been doing very well, thought that they would sort of tap the millennial demographic, you know, tap Rick and Morty fans, and have a limited supply of the Szechuan sauce. And basically what happened in the United States is that basically Rick and Morty fans... Uh, stormed McDonald's across the nation. And they and weren't such,
0: prepared, right? They, they, they weren't, weren't all stocked up. No, not every McDonald's even Not every had. McDonald's had soy sauce with ketchup. <laughs> no, no. And you literally had
2: people basically shouting, you know, after they had run out, you know, we want Szechuan sauce. Uh, there's even a video of, of somebody uh, jumping up on the counter and, like, quoting the show and then running out with uh, his shirt over the head. And uh, I think it's just further proof that uh, all,
0: all kinds of fandom are
2: by definition terrible
0: okay so i i legitimately didn't really know about the fandom angle on this like i knew it had some connection to the show yeah but like all i read was just replies underneath the mcdonald's tweet that was apologizing well, those are amazing and it was stuff like you know we drove for hours mm. my kids yeah. have been looking forward to this and like my take on the story was just like yeah we live in hell don't we like we really do <laughs> like
2: what to be fair so the show even before the szechuan incident i mean there was um Discussion of how narcissistic uh, and self-absorbed a lot of the the, you know, the really big Rick and Morty fans are uh, not dissimilar to uh, Fans of, of games, you know, basically harassing people. It's actually a kind of a running joke where essentially Uh, You'll have people attack other, you know, anybody who criticizes Rick and Morty gets attacked inevitably for not being smart enough to actually understand the humor of the show. Um, So it's just sort of this other, it's like another example of just like the incredible online pedantry Uh, that basically kind of defines I think, a lot of cultivated fandoms. And I think, you know, it's interesting... I brought this up to make fun of it, but now you're actually making an interesting point about it. Well, because the thing is, what's, you know, what's interesting is, like, I think it kind of goes against, you know, there's sort of been a back and forth within academia, discussing, like, audiences and fans, and, you know, and before, you know, there was a lot of dismissal of fans, and then, you know, sort of around, like, the late 80s, early 90s, people like Ian Ang... Uh, who studied the fans of Dallas, and then Henry Jenkins? They they kind of pioneered a new approach to sort of fan studies, where they're talking about well, no, you know, fans are are aware of the tech, you know, they, they 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 know multiple texts, they're sort of engaged, maybe in some sort of counter hegemonic project, and you know, it's a,
0: gr- a Gramscian know, reading, yeah, of the yeah, culture. and yeah. and
2: eventually, you know, I mean, um, you know, I think Henry Jenkins actually his early work was actually quite interesting, but then by two thousand six, he writes this book called Convergence Culture. And he makes a claim that i think now has become banal where it's sort of like you know uh oh well fans and corporations are meeting and they're making things better and you know Ah. there's sort of this there's sort of this meeting place and i think that you know things like this and you know before it uh you know i don't think i don't think you need to point to just one fandom i think there is a lot of evidence that there are a lot of problems with these cultivated consumer demographics like dedicated to one product um yet there's still sort of this insistence that, like, fandom is somehow this, like, really intensive, like, counter-hegemonic.
1: Well, there, it seems like fandom seems seems to have kind of appropriated the language of identity politics at times. Like, fan groups actually feel like they are, like, aggrieved minorities. As opposed to
0: a consumer niche. Yeah,
1: exactly. Like mm-hmm. it, Like, they believe it's an identity and they...
0: Even though, and also even though it's just, like, it's not an identity in the sense that, like being queer as an identity it's like you you're you're into star wars and you go to like a mass culture convention that's like sponsored yeah, by like, sony or whatever they
1: go to star uh, the star wars panel at comic-con and you know jj J. abrams or somebody has to come out and reassure the fans that well we're taking your thoughts into consideration mm-hmm. because like you are the fans mm. you are the people who are like have star wars as your identity you're different than the regular people who consume it
0: and i gotta say like i think we've talked about this before i don't even remember which episode it was where instead of talking about the movie i just complained about rogue one for 20 minutes but like but like i actually think one of the problems i i I, I talked about this on the struggle session podcast we were talking about uh fan culture and um it strikes me that like Sort of the promise of corporate fan culture like if we're complaining about it like often like somebody like me might say well you know it's just it's just red meat for fans you watch a star wars movie they're like oh here's this thing that you remember here's this like random reference point but i say like i don't even think fan culture and you know these kind of blockbuster movies are even very good at satiating those desires like rogue one isn't even like a plausible prequel to the, like it doesn't even work like on its own terms as like a piece of kind of fan fiction. Fan fiction is supposed to be the problem with it is supposed to be that it's like too neat Uh and it like explains everything and whatever. And I don't think like a lot of these things even like they're not even giving fans the crappy like formulaic, satisfaction that they're you know supposed to it seems to me
1: well first of all this is the second episode in a row in which you've talked about rogue one so (laughs) clearly it hurt you (laughs) and secondly you know a lot of it like it's more simple than you make it out like a lot of them just want to see some of the familiar characters and and hear some of the familiar blips and bloops and you know don't want it to veer and you know right but then but then the end of rogue one is fun for them because they get to see how the puzzle pieces. but in that case it's
0: but that's but that gives the game away right because it's not for real fans it's for it's for a mass audience yeah
1: but no it's for real fans because they recognize something like it's an inside joke for them like they're they're able to see it and be like i recognize that care that obscure character don't you
0: think if it was a real fan then the point is that it's like like it's to me like a real star wars fan like and i don't i don't count my you know i'm not a star wars identarian or whatever but would be somebody who's into, like, the expanded universe and all that kind of stuff. Like, I thought the point of fan culture was supposed to be that it was, like, esoteric and that it was really insular. And so if there were in-jokes, it's like uh, most people wouldn't pick up on them. But because these things are for mass audiences, that's not really what they're doing. I think
2: what's interesting is that I don't think anybody really imagined that basically that these sort of things that were previously seen or, or constructed as niche products would just become a dominant cultural force i think it does really have force us to call into question you know just maybe some of the earlier assumptions that we had about 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 fans and fandom and I, it's interesting because i think some of the really earlier work in in this you know um the kind of work in cultural studies especially uh you know the work of people like stuart hall raymond williams angela McRobbie, dick hebdage you know where they had kind of almost like a marxist kind of Uh, approach to it, and they really kind of were trying to understand subcultures right before they were studying subcultures i think was was quite interesting and you know some of the early fan study stuff is, is is interesting as well but you know i i think the problem is just that you have these consumer demographics that are just basically they're so catered to um and i mean even with the szechuan sauce thing i mean mcdonald's is bringing it back in the winter of 2018 so you know you know so when it comes to like caving in
1: like even even like 30 years ago like the fans were burning michael keaton in effigy because they didn't right was true like there's always been this this sense that well we're we need to be respected as an identity we're this aggrieved group no I, i agree uh so I guess it's not a, not a new innovation that they no. regard themselves as like an oppressed minority. It's just more interesting, I guess, because like now that this stuff has become the dominant culture, the idea of them regarding themselves as the oppressed minority is more ridiculous.
2: Yeah, and also like it's become, I think, more prevalent to people but I think you're right, Will, that this has always been a kind of a push and pull relationship and I mean, I've actually studied, um, one of my projects was I actually studied fan letters that were written into science fiction magazines in the 30s and 40s and I mean, that was sort of an early kind of component of fan culture people built networks that's how uh, people met each other they, they started the first conventions was through these letter columns and I mean they became more and more through these conventions and through these sort of meetings I mean right. fandom itself became more and more uh, powerful whereas before it was sort of just this very loose association of uh, of amateurs and I think. What's what's interesting is that like Henry Jenkins, you know, who I keep coming back to and I I, I guess I I sort of I talk about him because he's like the most prominent example of somebody who kind of said, you know, I'm gonna be the ACA fan. I'm gonna be the academic who doesn't isn't dismissive of fans, but it's like I'm an academic and a fan and this idea of sort of combining the two together. And he talks about, you know, I remember reading some of his interviews, you know, the fans liked me because I was the first, you know, one of the first people. I was like them. I was able Mm -hmm. to talk about their interests and you know what's interesting about him, and I you know, is that his early work, uh, his very first book, was actually based on the Twin Peaks fandom, and I think he actually benefited quite a bit because you have an audience sort of engaging with a very sort of different show on American television in the late 80s that he was also a fan of. And also people who were sort of willing to kind of take the extra effort to kind of maybe interpret well, you know, what's going on. Okay, you know, they, they have some understanding of David Lynch. There's maybe a higher level of, of, of engagement and education. And he sort of, I think he benefited a lot from that. And I think people took from that, oh, well, you know, fans are engaged. They're creating all this great stuff. And it's not that they're not doing that, but I don't think people sort of thought about the ways the very cynical ways in which these same fans could be cultivated mm-hmm. and in which they could be led to believe you know they're the most important demographic and turn and, into
0: a consumer niche and yeah. turn into a
2: consumer niche mm-hmm. right so and i think that and i i think that's really kind of what's so troubling about this
0: yeah turn into a consumer niche by kind of flattering their sense that they're an oppressed minority
2: yeah they're they're very oppressed and there must be
0: there on the sort of marketing side like advertisers and marketing experts must have they they've probably sort of worked out the whole epistemology of like how you co-opt a uh-huh. like mm-hmm. subculture or whatever like i'm sure there's a literature on that um anyway i feel like you know speaking of counter hegemonic fan culture the les- lesson of the sejuan thing given the mcdonald's actually back down and is bringing you know bringing the uh the sejuan back um is that the people really do have the power which brings us to our main topic this week v for vendetta
2: remember remember the fifth of november the gunpowder treason and plot. I know of no reason why the gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. But what of the man? I know his name was Guy Fawkes, and I know in 1605 he attempted to blow up the Houses of Parliament. But who was he really? What was he like? We're told to remember the idea, not the man. Because a man can fail. It can be caught. He can be killed and forgotten. But 400 years later, an idea
0: can still change the world. I don't know, this was a film that I really liked at the time. You did um, mention
1: before that, like, when you were a teenager, Adbusters was your politics.
0: Very, very much yeah. so. I, I read Adbusters. I loved this film. Appropriately, we watched an old DVD copy <laughs> that I discovered, um... Like, Buried. Which actually was, like, part of the way through when we put it in, so... <sighs> Just had been waiting for for us for all these years. Yeah, I mean, I I do think this film typifies a certain kind of, like, very mid-2000s. It it reminds me of kind of the Adbusters way of doing things in that it, like, sort of simulated the feeling of politics. But Mm -hmm. I'm not really sure what the politics of it were. They uh, they weren't. I mean, to be fair, Adbusters, you know, actually had articles and stuff. It was just that they were kind of inconsistent in what they were demanding and what their analysis was. But I think this film also has kind of enjoyed a second life, both kind of aesthetically because of the popularity of the uh, Guy Fawkes masks in its wake. And also, I do think some of the problems that emerged in Occupy Wall Street, I mean, it's not that this movie caused them or anything, but you can see kind of some of the uh, the mindsets that produced them.
1: Boy, uh, it was, by the way, it was hard to watch it was this a slog. movie a, it was a slog, but also A, the, the fact that it's in that canon of movies like Fight Club and, you know, all those, like, dorm room movies. American Psycho. Yeah, and B, the fact that the Guy Fawkes mask has become this, like, inescapable symbol of just, like, I don't know, red pill bullshit.
0: Is that what the Guy Fawkes got Fox mask well, is? You don't,
2: you don't think it is? Well, it's weird because I feel like it's had uh, two different lives, right? Because, right? like, the first life is, like, the anonymous life, right? Like, where people are sort mm-hmm. of talking about, oh, anonymous, you know, they're doing activism. They're resisting the Church of Scientology, they're leaking documents, they're sort of engaged once again in this sort of really kind of countering um, the prevailing kind of authoritarian aspects of society. And I think now we've kind of realized, well, you know, emerging from 4chan, I mean, Anonymous, you know, comes from 4chan, that there's, you know, a much darker aspect. I think it really comes out of this sort of um, kind of construction of like online identity as basically being um, naturally about resistance, naturally free, uh, naturally always against sort of these sort of authoritarian impulses. And I think now, I mean, people now more associate it with the alt-right, whereas before people were like, well, no, you know, and people wearing, you know, the the anonymous is great. You know, they're engaging a lot of really great activism. And I mean, at the end of the day, as, as a group that is not sort of tied to any specific political belief, I think, you know, we know that like, like they're not going to act in a necessarily a way that is representative of some sort of progressive like project which is what they were assumed to be doing
0: right well let's let's talk a little bit about uh the you know the, the actual film let's lay it out a little yeah, bit. yeah so this is uh,
1: based on the graphic novel by alan moore and it's set in a not too distant future london where uh, because of war and because of terrorism, a far-right fascist government led by John Hurt has taken over and has seemingly outlawed all art, all dissent, Mm -hmm. all, all free thought. And John Hurt looms over the film as a big brother figure.
2: Which is ironic because, of course, I think this is a bit of stunt casting. I mean, he was in the 1980, like, he was in the adapt- film adaptation. He was Winston. 1984 Winston, yeah. yeah.
1: Meanwhile, a terrorist, or is he a freedom fighter by the name of V, <laughs> who, uh, played by Hugo Weaving, uh, who wears a, a Guy Fox mask for the entirety of his runtime, blows up, what does he blow up first?
2: Uh, the Old Bailey, which the is Old basically Bailey. a courthouse in uh, Britain.
0: I mean, his plot is to blow up the Houses of Parliament and sort of of recreating the gunpowder, the, the thwarted gunpowder yeah. plot from the 17th century, and uh, to do his plan, he recruits Natalie Portman, who's just kind of a. Uh, she works in the in the sort of big big brother news network. Yeah, right. A, a, a working stiff.
1: Well, she's like out at
2: night. I know in the original graphic novel, I, I think that she's soliciting. Basically, that's what she huh. is doing. She's soliciting, but I think they they excise that from the movie, and then she gets picked up by these. So one of the things that's really confusing about the film is that they kind of contain it contains all the references to I guess the mythology of this world or the way the world's constructed, but they sort of just sort of so she runs into like the secret service, which mm-hmm. are called the Finger, and then you know he basically rescues her from from being raped uh, mm-hmm. by by these men, which is um, I don't know the film feels like it never has a pulse like I feel like just from the beginning. It's a very like understated, drawn out, mm-hmm. naturalistic yeah, kind of I,
1: I was shocked watching it now how kind of how little style it had. It's very brightly lit and kind of flatly shot. Yeah. Uh, and there's not a lot of energy to it. It feels as you pointed out like any TV show of the period, which is especially weird since it came from the kind of Wachowski assembly line normally I mean, they only produce this, but normally they have a lot more style. It's a movie that has no subtext whatsoever. Everything is explained in long monologues. Uh, but but you know, it's uh, even so. It's more relevant now than ever. <laughs>
0: The plot really is, it's like 45 minutes too long, at least. I mean, there was a, a moment where I felt like, okay, we're entering the third act, right? And I checked and we weren't even halfway through the film. <laughs> Basically, the V character exacts vengeance on a few of the architects of this regime. And in the process, he kind of raises Natalie Portman's consciousness as kind of a precursor to raising the consciousness of the nation, which is done with remarkable ease. But there's like... A few things that are very strange about this movie. So the fact that there's this weird twist where uh, she's kidnapped by what she thinks is the Secret Service after Stephen Fry, who is like a broadcaster who gets, gets rounded up for, uh, for, for the crime of bringing back for the, for Benny the, Hill, for the crime of laughter, um, yeah. <laughs> like she's escaping his house and then she gets rounded up. She thinks it's by the secret police. She ends up in prison. She gets her head shaved. She's like deprived of food, tortured. And, you know, in the when she's in the cell, she reads some letters from a woman. Valerie. Named
1: Valerie. Who was imprisoned for the crime of being gay.
0: Right. She and her partner were part of kind of the initial, like, purges when the regime started. It targeted Muslims. It targeted queer people and other uh, undesirables, as uh, the John Hurt character puts it in the film. But so it turns out the twist is that it's actually V that's doing this all along. And I gotta say, like... It's it's pretty fucked it's up. It's pretty fucked up, and like it doesn't really hold water. And it's like, was, and she and she forgives him remarkably quickly.
1: I, I was watching this, thinking that if this movie came out today, there would be think pieces about it's supposed to be good that Natalie
0: Portman forgives her abuser. And it, That's I mean, those right. think pieces would be <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. What you were saying was that they wouldn't pass. It, yeah, or yeah. like this yeah. wouldn't pass. Yeah. yeah,
2: you know, this isn't the, entirely the fault of the film. Like this is just in the comic, the original comics. I mean, this is a major plot point. She does read these letters, and she is tortured in this way but
1: I also think it's pretty badly done in the film because initially when V abducts her and makes her live with him she, I think, starts to like him a little too quickly. It's just not. Yeah, very, he, yeah, he buys
0: her off after a few hours by basically making her like an egg on toast, and she's like, "This is delicious." And yeah. Then, yeah, and
2: you play jazz, and you have art, and yeah, it's really weird so just how quickly it's yeah. not
1: very convincing. And then he recruits her to go on one of his little missions to pose as a schoolgirl to seduce a priest. When she's in the room with the priest, she tries to explain, help me, I'm a prisoner of V, the terrorist. But that
0: rings a little hollow because we've seen her bonding with V It doesn't make, her betrayal doesn't make sense, her attempted betrayal. Yeah,
1: like for the movie to make sense, and it still frankly wouldn't be good because the the gender politics of it would still be fucked up, but for Mm. the movie to at least make sense, she would have to hate him until the end of his training ritual and then she would have to finally understand. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And that's the thing is that the sort of, if I remember, I mean she does sort of go along a bit more uh, in the original comic but that, I mean, you know, the thing is I don't think that really kind of justifies what happens and I think it also speaks to just Alan Moore. I think he has a bit of a reputation for really kind of creating these situations where he puts young, you know, woman and he's really precarious and and really like pretty like bizarre and kind of fucked up situations Mm. which he does in a lot of his other comics as as well and I think it's just part of his weird really pretty pretty awful I would and other people have criticized uh, him for this it's pretty awful
1: but I actually this. think this whole subplot is maybe one of the reasons why this movie and this story appeals uh or has had a long afterlife with kind of like 4chan culture because yeah. I actually think a lot of them probably look at the relationship between v and Natalie portman and see it as like kind of how how things should be well, when
0: she kind of has her revelation after the like he says you realize there were, it was there was something more important than life you know there was freedom or something like like that yeah. now you have no fear and alex you made the comment uh that like he just red pilled her yeah, yeah. i and mean that's there, what it there seems is like. and there is something to that i think a lot of the, like
1: 4chan people would almost kind of be like well the girls don't like me now they don't understand me now because my ideas are too great for them i'm, <laughs> I'm, t- I'm too brilliant and smart but if i could just you know abduct one and put her through a training ritual then they would understand like i think this is like, if they could just be forced
0: to see my greatness right exactly yeah. like
1: i think this is why the movie is appealing to some if people. they
0: if they could be uh, in a basement away from all the cucks and yeah 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 actually now that now that it you didn't know, seem no about sinister this,
1: when we were watching no it, it, but. it's it's
0: actually it's pretty bad so the film kind of climaxes with you know the 1812 overture and the destruction of parliament and through a series of again pretty like easily orchestrated machinations v is able to engineer the death of both the supreme chancellor and his kind of deputy who's who planning a coup against him played by uh tim pigott smith
2: also also uh, i think luca uh, you pointed out they're literally like just the only
1: five British. all actors. the english
0: <laughs> actors are in this movie i mean because there's only like let's be fair i think there's like 15 of them but they're all in the movie <laughs> yeah and all of them except for hugh <laughs> grant Every British the character movie. actor yeah and after kind of a you know a few of these kind of gestures it's clear kind of the people are rising and then as the troops are standing outside you know significant locations in London, Barrett They're waiting for orders to fire, but they don't get them, of course, because the Chancellor is dead, and a whole kind of horde of ordinary folk, a multitude uh... of many, wearing the Guy Fawkes masks, all kind of come up, and then in the kind of final scene of the movie, they all take the masks off, and we see various people who we know to be dead. Um, but of course, they're not really dead because you can't kill an idea. Ideas are what, bulletproof. What, what that idea
1: is, I'm still not entirely sure. But <laughs> the idea is that freedom is good, and freedom of speech is mm. good,
0: and the, the 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 ability to laugh at our at our overlords is good. I did just want to praise one thing about the film, which that um, is perhaps an unintentional achievement of it. But I do think it actually does kind of imagine if there was a far right hegemony in britain if like the british national party came to power or something you know or the or the right wing of ukip you know what it would look like because it would britain in this film looks remarkably similar to what it already does and like you know natalie portman just her character works in a white collar office and she has to get her boss coffee and all the rest of it and there's people uh you see people at the bar they're in the pubs they're in just an at old home. Age home yeah and and i kind of i kind of like that because i think i think all this is a bit of a. Digression, but I I think there's a tendency in kind of the dystopian form to what I would call the darkness at noon syndrome Mm -hmm. which you know, if people have read Arthur Kustler's D- Darkness at Noon, it kind of portrays a, a sort of Stalinist regime where, you know, every, everyone's lives are hyper-regulated and, and it's kind of about the, the party members and what happens to to them. And and there's an assumption, I think, that there's a tendency, rather, in, in a lot of dystopian narratives to the, the total control of everybody's lives and stuff. And the fact is a lot of authoritarianism is a lot more banal mm-hmm. than that. And it, it actually fits a lot more comfortably with mass society and and things like that. Where it goes really wrong, though, there's almost nobody in the movie that's an ordinary person that has any sympathy for the regime. We, we see after V does his first terrorist attack, we see on the news one
1: of the newscasters saying... Um, oh, well, of course, the demolition was planned months in advance. And then we see Natalie Portman in the kitchen of the office with one of her coworkers, and the coworker says, huh, could you believe they think we, we'll swallow that? There's a sense that nobody in the society actually believes anything that's on the TV.
0: Yeah, the camera keeps panning to these random families, and they're all just shaking their heads, watching these being like bullocks. And I kind of like, why are you watching?
1: Yeah and, <laughs> yeah, and there's no sense that, I mean, John Hurt, as a leader, is, you know, this... Stern, humorless taskmaster. Like, there's no reason anybody would like
0: him. No. There's no kind of sense of, like, nationalism. There's no patriotism. Even though that is kind of what it's supposed... That's how it's supposed to have come about, is through that. The yeah. It, it, like, their,
2: their, whole, their whole... It's, like, a, right, it's like, a right-wing
0: nationalism. Yeah, it's, you it's know. like they
2: say, like, England prevails and things mm-hmm. like that. And, and you don't get a sense that anybody really has, like, any sort of conviction.
1: Yeah, and one of the things Orwell got right in 1984 was the sense that, like, they were able to keep this society where, you know, nothing else was working for its inhabitants. They were able to keep it going... By having these endless wars mm-hmm. uh, Which would be able to get you know Nationalist fervor and Because everyone believed in the cause Of this country And th- this country was part of their identity It was able to perpetuate itself But there's nothing similar in
0: this It seems that people just
1: go along with the regime More out of inertia than anything There's,
0: there's a vague sort of There's a, a management of information that happens And yet nobody yeah. seems to believe it I mean of course another thesis of 1984 And this goes back to the sort of uh, Banality of authoritarianism that I mentioned earlier is that, like, in the Goldstein manuscript, which which is about, you know, two-thirds of the way through the book that kind of reveals how Oceana came about, it's revealed that it largely came about through the cooperation of, you know, middle managers and middle-class technocrats, people that were brought together, where kind of mass society and private enterprise brought them together. Um, and, I don't know, in this film, the middle managers are very... Flimsy like they're actually very easily turned and even the, there's a really ridiculous arc of one of them Who's a lady who engineered these hideous experiments that the regime. she's like
2: dr. Mangala. Basically. Yeah I
0: mean, she's she's pure evil and yet the film wants to as V V kills her quite humanely with like a syringe while she's asleep And then as they're talking She's like, you know, is it too late to apologize? And he says never and then you know, she says I'm so sorry and then I didn't quite catch it, but I think in the scene where they're all taking off their masks at the end, you might have seen her face in the crowd. I uh, thought I saw that, it.
1: That would seem like something that this movie would do. <laughs> or then there's also the subplot about the detective who's on the case of trying to find V. And in pursuing this case, he discovers the full extent of the government's corruption. But there's never any sense that he's actually struggling with this. He doesn't seem to actually care all that much about the government at the start, and he seems to—he's not that committed to it. He's not as committed to it as he
0: should be. It seems yeah,
2: like. and and you know the other thing is that um, the the problem with the film is that we as the audience have sort of figured out okay, the Saint Mary's virus was clearly manufactured, and yet the film keeps reminding us. They, they have several scenes that happen where they're like constantly reminding us that the government conspired to basically poison its own citizens so it could have power, and what I think that does is it actually excises the political completely mm-hmm. from it like it sort of excises any possibility that there could be a popular support for this type of government and I think that actually that makes the film less interesting Well, less and, and, and in
0: fact um, during one of the truly insufferable exposition bits I think Alex you may have been looking at your phone as we all did throughout the <laughs> film. Um, but there was a, just a split second where you saw on the screen it's like nobody could have re- predicted the result of the election like and, you know until the terrorist attack and then you see the, the like there's a, a graph there's a chart. and and it's yeah. like and it's like there's this little red sliver that's like six percent it says labor and then the rest of it is just this big black it's like you know 93 percent. which, which would never because like
1: right-wing authoritarian governments like hitler what percent of the vote did he get like 35 well in the, the like, f- yeah the first election yeah yeah, yeah. you know trump gets 46 percent mm. of the vote like this is not how these mm. you know far-right authoritarian governments get in no i mean
0: al gore won the popular vote <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: he <laughs> lives on my street right now <laughs> president <laughs> gore <Okay. laughs> uh, fan of the, podcast. <laughs> the movie, I I think to get at a point you said, it lets the audience off the hook too easily because it just suggests that this bad politician got in and he alone rules with an iron fist and nobody really likes him or cares about him. The country is just ready to turn on a dime the minute somebody like V shows up.
0: And that's very hashtag resistance,
1: isn't it? Yeah, and like in reality, for somebody like this to be able to sustain his position of power he would have to actually appeal to people and and the resistance would actually have to face resistance yeah there would have to be a popular base and this movie like it makes the people of britain look too good and it's
2: all about restoring our country like that's used several times like you know you know v he's not there's something very a wrong with this country he yeah says. there's something very wrong and, and yeah that he's restoring you know the previous values of britain which of course would never lead to any kind of right which like i mean not to be
0: like too kind of historicist about this but i mean fascism is as you know british as apple pie i mean since there was fascism there's been a a current in english society i mean particularly among the english aristocracy that it's appealed to i mean oswald mosley was he was an aristocrat and um so is, you know, so is Nigel Farage. Nick Griffin, the former head of the British National Party, the now fortunately largely imploded British National Party, he was, at, like, at school with my dad, you know, at, at Oxbridge. That's, that's really you know? disturbing. Yeah. yeah, what are the aristocrats getting out of this arrangement
1: that the government has, has, has proffered in this well, movie? Well, there's no, I mean, there's no, where's corporate yeah, Britain or like this. Stephen Fry, who we're led to believe is like the most popular talk show host in this society. The minute he said he does something bad on TV, the minute he makes fun of the leader on TV, he gets literally killed. You know, if in a real situation like this, they wouldn't kill him, they would just marginalize him. People like him wouldn't have to worry about being killed. Or
2: try to co-opt him, Yeah, you know, yeah, in some way, yeah. He gets killed over, I mean, I think this is totally ridiculous, over bringing back Benny Hill... Like I mean, it's well, so but, well, lame.
1: Yeah, like depicting the John Hurt character in a comedy sketch where he like slips on on a banana peel to the Benny Hill music. It makes me wonder what this talk show would be like in a society
0: like this. If, yeah. What what is the what is a regular episode yeah, look like? Because like? he says, you know, they're sitting on the couch and he's like, uh he's like, we we reshoot it with a different script or whatever yeah. after, and it's like, what? But what what was the original script? There's there's another talk show host character who's more kind of like the
1: Bill O'Reilly of this world, but I guess we're led to believe that like who's, who's
0: actually a former military guy who was responsible for Mm. bringing the regime about partly
1: yeah but uh stephen fry is supposed to be more like the graham norton of this universe but like what can he talk about seemingly i mean there's no there's no art there's Mm -hmm. no culture it's all been outlawed what what fills the hour
2: (laughs) yeah and i mean the like the movie itself is just completely disinterested it spends a lot of time like on exposition on sort of repeating things but it's not actually It's not actually convinced of anything. It actually doesn't have, like, a statement. The only statement it has is that freedom is good, and I mean, that's it. And because of that, because it, like, really lacks those convictions, it made just such a flat, non-textured So, So, uh,
0: Alex, what you're saying, um, so it's kind of a generalized sense of resistance founded on nothing in particular with kind of a a faux-edginess that Mm -hmm. is ultimately about restoration rather than... Revolution. Wow, I'm glad we picked it for the Michael Moore you know, podcast. The movie is more
1: relevant now
0: than ever. <laughs> it it's, it's the uh, it, it's the real slacker uprising. Okay, you know, you know what would be a really, you know be a really funny idea would be to try to get a like a think piece published somewhere that's like, YV for Vendetta is the film we need in the age of Trump." <laughs> that would be our, amazing. I actually think you could you could dupe an editor, like a, a content yeah, because they editor. wouldn't even bother reading the article. <laughs> no, well nobody would, but lots of people would share it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I can assure you, I mean you no know harm. Who are you? Who? Who is but the form following the function of what and what I am is a man in a mask.
2: Well, I can see that.
1: Of course, you can. I'm not questioning your powers of observation. I'm merely remarking upon the paradox of asking a masked man who he is.
0: Oh,
1: right. But on this most auspicious of nights, permit me then, in lieu of the more commonplace sobriquet, to suggest the character of this dramatis persona. Voila! In view, a humble vaudevillian veteran, cast vicariously as both victim and villain by the vicissitudes of fate. This visage, no mere veneer of vanity, is a vestige of the vox populi, now vacant, vanished. However, this valorous visitation of a bygone vexation stands vivified and has vowed to vanquish these venal and virulent in vanguarding vice and vouchsafing the violently vicious and voracious violation of volition chief legacy of this movie is that the guy fox mask became an icon whether on 4chan culture or in occupy wall street i guess for a lot of people in occupy wall street or over here occupy toronto v was kind of a uh,
0: formative influence do you guys have anything to say about that well i actually saw the the first day when i walked down to occupy toronto back in those uh, halcyon days of 2011, 2011 um there was uh you know, there were some people wearing Guy Fox masks, and I remember people being like very impressed by them, being like, "Oh, that's Anonymous! Anonymous is here!" And mm-hmm. it's like it was just a bunch of people wearing like masks they bought at a store, but mm-hmm. people were very impressed by them. I think there is something in this film in this the idea that you know it's it's really just centers around this vague notion of consciousness raising that was something that I saw. I mean, I I think that. Occupy Wall Street did, you know, help enter this language of the 99% and the 1%. Um, this like crude but effective class language, it kind of entered that into the popular imagination. There, were, there was a lot of good activism that happened within it. Um, it should never be forgotten that in the United States, especially the state actually pretty actively disrupted a lot of Occupy encampments. But having said that, I mean there was a lot about Occupy Wall Street that was extremely flawed and and certainly this kind of idea of consciousness raising um, but not really around any particular program or codified ideology or even kind of just codified set of values that you could try to debate and turn into an ideology. I feel like you can sort of see the uh, the antecedents to that in V for Vendetta because it turns out at the end of the film, everybody's just there and they're ready to participate and just their act of mm-hmm. participating itself constitutes a sort of revolutionary politics. And if you look, if you find the worst clips of, and I'm talking the worst cl- you know, the worst dirge from Occupy Wall Street mm-hmm. It was maybe a couple years ago now for some reason Alex and I went on this like this rabbit hole of like yeah, old Occupy oh Toronto clips and we found yeah. this one where it was it was a bunch of people being informed of like a, a, a as it was as they called it a consciousness raising exercise. And they were using the the people's mic. Yeah, basically. the people's mic yeah. where, you, where you chant something and then everybody amplifies it by chanting it but back. There's literally yeah. five people there. Yeah, and it's a small group of people, so it looks very kind of strange and cult-like. But also, like, they're not talking about anything. Like, it's got all the pretense of sort of a, I don't know, radical politics. But there's no politics mm. where the politics should be.
2: I mean, I think that what it gets back to is I think what was really popular and I think was been popular for a long time, but especially around then was this idea that, you know, people would just sort of naturally come together in these networks of resistance that, you know, there didn't need to be any kind of particular ideology or program that people would just sort of naturally just on their own sort of conviction come together. And that that was going to be facilitated by the internet, right? This yeah. really, this
0: really is yeah. a film for our times, isn't it? <laughs> but not in a good way.
2: No, you know, and I think, you know, everybody was sort of coming up with a book. Like I think of people like clay shirky right who uh wrote this book in 2009 called here comes everybody and clay shirky famously person who during the 2016 election accused ben jealous of being a white bro and also helped raise money for the north carolina gop after their offices were vandalized oh God. and this guy you know but i mean he he was he was just um, one amongst many other people hawking this idea that well you know you know what people they're coming together in forums they're coming together we have a digital you know network society a digital society it's sort of and it's this old idea of like digital utopianism which i think is really kind of i think this idea that just through technology like we'll just all naturally as a group of people come together without the need for any kind of leadership or any kind of like actual program and, well, and think, that
0: and that gels very well with i think the deep structure of present-day liberalism as well which is that it's all about the discourse and it's all about people getting together and just exchanging ideas and and it's about maintaining a kind of respectable environment for that as opposed to like doing anything that's not a means to an end it's kind of an end in itself you know
2: and I think that's why they call themselves the Resistance, right? You know, because I think resistance is a little more vague than revolution. Like revolution, like mm-hmm. seems to have a more powerful call to action. And I think that's why there's sort of this vague banner of like hashtag the Resistance. I think people yeah, sort of they, they collate can, around. They
1: can resist Trump in the way that they resist like having dessert <laughs> at, a, at a restaurant. <laughs> you know, it, it.
2: You know, resistance is just you know bringing back the power of laughter through Saturday Night Live. You know.
1: You know. So mm-hmm. I, I'm actually gonna. Uh, Play devil's advocate for Saturday Night Live here for a sec. I know you're looking looking at me like I'm insane, and and I don't I don't like the show. I don't think it's funny. Donald Trump actively hates the show, and he's made himself look stupid by tweeting about how much he hates the show, and that has made him a less credible figure.
0: Okay, but here's the thing: I think that like Donald Trump is the product of like a sick culture where everything is aesthetic and image based, and everything is Mm. this ludicrous carnivalesque hellscape and to me snl is just a part of that as well it's just the liberal version of that where people think Mm -hmm. that politics is just alec baldwin doing a silly voice and saying like Kofifi or whatever you know i don't know well
1: first of all i'll I'll never forgive snl for letting him host you know last year right at at a crucial time but like i'm pretty cynical about the power of comedy to bring down Mm -hmm. bad people but i mean At the very least, it it can make them look stupid, which can,
0: you know, and by caricaturing them, it makes it easier to laugh at them. I mean, I I take your point. Like, it is funny, like, almost as just a a corollary that, like, the President of the United States, like, he sits in the White House watching SNL, and that he's offended by, like, that dumb caricature that's not even funny, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Like yeah, uh, SNL sucks.
1: That's, that's what I don't know. Uh, who, who, who are your favorite characters? Oh, I don't even. I don't I mean. Any, I even any anybody by Joe Piscopo is my favorite. Okay. Character.
2: I don't know. I I think the problem is that I think John Stewart instantiated this idea that the comedian is powerful like people you know watch the Daily Show and thought oh you know he did a lot to to resist, restore to, to restore to sanity. sanity. Yeah, and I mean all but all it led to was this sort of confusing once again this rally to restore sanity, right? There's no sort I'm of I'm so glad context. you guys
0: are here even though none of us are quite sure why. Yeah. Or. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my god well,
1: i mean i mean i don't know like to play devil's advocate again i mean like these late night talk shows somebody like jimmy kimmel with these monologues he's doing about gun control or health care is actually making these issues accessible to some people and is making people angry about these issues in a way that other people in the media aren't
2: i don't know but jimmy kimmel like also <coughs> tweeted that like john mccain is an american hero I'm not not saying he's he's perfect. Yeah.
1: I'm not not saying he's a great political thinker, but I mean, I guess what I'm saying is like he has some use. He can be put to some good use.
0: I I think there's something to that. I just think the problem is that for a lot of people like that's the extent of their activism. Well, I mean, I mean, I think there's always been a sense in which, you know, in the United States, this has been a big kind of running theme in, in the podcast you know there there is kind of a wing of American culture that just thinks once you get a Democrat in the White House, yeah, that's kind of the end of that's kind of the end of it. Even though the same shit continues to happen, things continue to get worse. And I don't know. I guess I agree with you that there. I guess there can be a kind of, for want of a better phrase, consciousness raising that goes on with this kind of stuff. I think that type of figure is a lot more useful than like a Keith Olbermann or something. Mm-hmm. But I I think ultimately the utility of that is pretty like is pretty limited. If there's ever going to be any substantive political change in the united states or for that matter anywhere else dissent has to go beyond that and i think too often um and and it has to go beyond that in like actually mainstream culture and too often that that doesn't really happen okay i agree all right now watch this draw (laughs)